You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here's your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Abema, and today our guest is Dr. Sarah Harrington Cross. Dr. Cross is an instructor in the Division of Palliative Medicine, Division of Family and Preventative Medicine at Emory University School of Medicine. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Where did you grow up? I grew up in South Carolina. That is that is home. When I'm when I'm not traveling, at least pre-COVID days. Right now, I'm I'm living in Atlanta, so still in the South. So, if you look back over your life, who inspired you the most from childhood? I was particularly close with one of my grandmothers. Her death was the first death that I ever witnessed in person. And I think that was a large part of why I ended up staying in this field. I had begun working in hospice a short time before her death. To be quite honest, I didn't expect that I would stay in it. You know, there's something about seeing someone that you love die and it changes, it it takes it from being a, a foreign sort of abstract concept to, to understanding why it matters, what type of care someone receives, how they're treated, how the family's treated, how you deal with that. I was very fortunate to have had uh, close relationships with older adults throughout my life, had always uh, felt comfortable working with, with people who were older. And so I think for those reasons, hospice was a natural fit for me. So how has the care that she received in her end of life impacted how you provide care? She was very fortunate in that it was it was a pretty quick end. She had been very independent and at 97, did not want to use her walker because she did not want to look old. Unfortunately, as a consequence, she fell and, and broke both hips. When she could not walk, she no longer wanted to stay alive and stopped eating and Fortunately, that did not drag on, and but we were able to to be with her and say goodbye and joke and sort of have a little bit of that closure. It, and I think that was helpful for all of us in the midst of the sadness. There was a lot of laughter, and and so I I think it's wanting to ensure that that everybody gets that or or some form of it in which their needs are met and and people are able to to be together. I think is is really important. So you started in hospice as a social worker. What was the motivation to join social work? You know, I, I think I don't think that I can can say that I knew where things would end up. I, I think that would that would not be accurate. I was always interested in in both uh, healthcare and in sort of the social aspects of of people's lives. And hospice, it turned out, was just the first job that that I got as a social worker. And and I believe I'd begun to allude to, I I didn't think I was going to stay in it forever. I thought I'll get some experience and then figure out where I want to go. And I remember someone when I was in my MSW program saying, people who work in hospice tend to love it and stay with it forever. Mm. Um, And I was like, oh, really? I didn't really know anything about it. And then I became one of those people who got hooked in. I mean, there's just something very compelling about it. And so, you know, after I'd started and then sort of seeing my grandmother's death, it, now it's it's all I've done, you know, yeah. and, and I wouldn't have planned that from the beginning. It just sort of ended up that way. Well, no, when I started in hospice, uh, the first three months, three to six months was really tough because, yeah, yeah seeing death and dying every day, 
Yeah. <laughs> like any amateur, I, I would take this with me. I would take this pain with me at home. And um, I began to suffer from compassion fatigue. How did you deal with your early years in hospice work? I, I think there's part of me that would love to say it was it was never hard, but but that would not be be accurate. I, I actually remember very clearly the first time I was sitting with a woman who was imminently dying, and, and it was just the two of us in the room, and I was brand new. And I remember saying to myself, please don't let her die while I am here. What if I do something wrong? I won't know what, you know, what if I, what if I don't handle it right? What if there's some sort of an emergency? You have, you have to get used to it. You know, and I, I hate to say that in a way that you never get used to the suffering that you see. You never get used to, to that aspect of it, but it's less foreign. You know, you understand that it is, this is just what happens. And mm. Certainly, circumstances are different. I, I think it takes time. It takes working with a team to yeah. be able to discuss those things. I think there's certainly situations that are harder. I, I've had some pretty shocking experiences that are not sort of typical hospice. You know, I we had a new patient once. You know, the chaplain and I had gone out together to each do our assessments. The next day, we were notified that he had been murdered by the caregiver who had been in the home when we were there. You, you know, that's that's not something that you expect to happen. And, mm -hmm. and so, obviously, his family was dealing with a completely unexpected type of, of grief, as, as were those of us, even though we had just met him. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of things that, that come up just in the course of being involved in people's lives. Yeah. There's a lot of emotion, for sure. So beyond patient care, you've become one of the leading researchers in the field of hospice and palliative care. Where did your passion for research begin? I never expected to go into research. I, I always thought that I would continue doing field work. That was what I'd wanted to do and, and assumed that I would, would stay. I think over time, it became clear that sort of hospice as it exists currently is ill-prepared to meet the needs of every situation. I think you've probably heard people talk about this one-size-fits-all hospice mm. policy created with the best of intentions. But after seeing sort of situation after situation where it is insufficient to meet the needs of families and, and feeling like you were unable to change what you can offer or how you can help in a situation because of the way that the policy is designed. That to me was a bigger source of burnout than being around the suffering because it was really feeling impotent to be able to help. Mm. And so seeing cases where people had socioeconomic needs that the hospice benefit simply was not able to address or challenges being able to get someone into a facility who needed her hospice when the family was just simply unable to make it work at home. Mm. Those sorts of things were what motivated me to sort of move from direct practice into more of a population level public health type of approach to figure out there's some great research that I've read. You know, I want to be doing this type of problem solving to to begin to try to address some of those things that in my role as a social worker, I was simply unable to address. And you're contributing tremendously in, in the research field. What was your first research? 
actually the first paper that that um, I wrote was a review paper. Uh, I was fortunate to to partner on quite a number of projects with a cardiologist, Hader Varaish. It was on hospice use in heart failure, just exactly what what I was speaking of, sort of hospice having been designed based on the needs of people with cancer often poorly fits people who have other diseases such as heart failure or dementia, you know, where the disease trajectory is, is longer, sort of the terminal cancer period is, is usually there's much more rapid decline and the inability of people to be able to, to get what we consider, you know, curative treatment in addition to hospice. Patients with certain diagnoses are, are more disadvantaged where when there's a sort of a clear cut line of when are you dying? When are you considered hospice appropriate? And that's another area where there's a lot of need to improve what we have currently. So you feel like uh, the time, the time of dying uh, limits some people from getting hospice benefits? When you have a hospice benefit that is based on an estimated prognosis of six months or less, yeah, sort of knowing when to call hospice in it's tricky, you know, if if there's been research about the inexact science of, of of estimating life expectancy, and that is even trickier in in other diseases when people can fluctuate. You know, they can improve and and stabilize, but then they can have an exacerbation, and any of those exacerbations could be it. You know, or you have dementia where there's a you know could be years, you know, of of decline. They still have substantial needs. But, you know, hospice criteria with dementia, you know, you need to be able to say six words or less and, you know, and all of these other things, you know, there's, there's a very short amount of time where somebody can qualify for hospice, but long before they get to that point, there are significant needs that often go unmet. So how can that be changed? I think there's sort of a, an acceptance that the hospice as it is now is, is limited and limiting for people exactly what that looks like, I, I think is unclear. I think it needs to be based on on the need of of people, but the need varies based on on the illness that you have. And increasingly people have multiple illnesses. And so there's where you need research to be able to to try out and figure out and not just the clinical aspect, but then how are you going to pay for this? Hmm. So much of the motivation behind the hospice benefit was to keep costs down keep people out of the hospital, you know, if if you're if you're going to cut costs by having people stop chemotherapy, it's just a really difficult choice for people to make and the line has been increasingly blurred between, you know, when is when is it treatment no longer benefiting someone and and so there there are people doing research out there now to try to figure out new models of care and and so that's I'm hoping just to to be one other person looking at some of these issues. We were researching, we were looking for guests uh, who've done research in 2022, and your work came into our attention. Uh, what was the motivation for that research on a little bit of time? This was one of my dissertation papers, and I worked with one of my professors, Nathan Boucher, at, at Duke University and at the Durham VA. And we wanted to understand how patients, caregivers, as well as hospice staff, view the admissions process. It, it's really the entry into hospice. We wanted to understand how it is perceived and, and what can we learn from it about how to improve that. 
And, and so this was a qualitative study that we did with hospice admission staff and then the caregivers of recently deceased hospice patients. So what did you find? Well, we ended up with sort of four main themes. The first was dealing with issues that occurred before someone is referred to hospice. It was quite common for people to tell us that they had had poor communication about the patient's medical condition, you know, for example, not knowing that or not understanding that cancer had become metastatic. People are often told things, but when you're trying to process uh, a lot of difficult news, it doesn't often always get absorbed. And so, you know, obviously we, we couldn't tell what they had been told in reality, but, but the perception was that they had not been told as much as they wish they had. Not surprising, again, the stigma of hospice. One of the staff members, a nurse whom, with whom we spoke, referred to it as the H-bomb. Somebody being told that it's time for hospice. There's this fear that that means I'm going to die tomorrow. Hmm. And, and we had some spouses say, our, our perception was nothing from the truth. You know, I, hmm. I wish we had known that, that this was not giving up. But that is a is a common a common thing. It looks like there's not enough knowledge given to the patient and the family. From our results, that was a common a common theme. You know, it's really hard to generalize from a small sample, and obviously, the, the goal of of qualitative research is not not to make generalizations. I, I think a lot of these conversations are so difficult that people can sometimes avoid having having these conversations, or like I said, things are said, but not fully absorbed. You know, mm. if, if you're in the middle of a crisis or you're just getting a tough diagnosis. And, and so I think even if people are told these things, the need to reiterate them is important. And, and we also had staff members tell us, hospice staff members say that they were, were forced to be the ones to break the bad news about someone dying because a patient had come to hospice, not understanding that it was for end-of-life care, thinking it was just extra support. Hmm. And the hospice staff wasn't prepared. They assumed that this had already been shared with this person and their family. And so the, the need for good communication is just paramount. With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Sole Bem, and we continue our conversation with Dr. Sarah Harrington-Cross. Uh, before the break, you spoke about uh, the miscommunication. Um, from the healthcare team to the family, especially a part where a patient comes on hospice and doesn't even know that they're actually receiving hospice care. You know, I, I hate to make blanket assumptions, and I, I think there there are so many people doing fantastic work. On the other side, there are people who are uncomfortable having these conversations. And I think there's sort of a hope in some cases that somebody else will do it. That said, even when, you know, people are having very thorough, very, very informed conversations, it's very difficult for people who are in the midst of, you know, anticipatory grief to, to process it. 
Yeah. I think there is a desire to sometimes hide reality. I remember when I worked in hospice, we would have family members who would ask us not to wear our badges into a home, not to identify ourselves as working from hospice. It's still a subject that so many are uncomfortable with. And and of course, there are people who don't want to know their prognosis. And so figuring out how to balance the amount of information you give to someone is is tricky. You know, I personally would would want to know what was going on with me. And, and if I'm dying, I would like to have all that information. But there are other people for whom that is too much. And so being able to balance that and how much you share and how you share it is an important part of the communication skills that palliative and end-of-life care clinicians bring. You mentioned earlier about stigma and hospice misconceptions. Mm -hmm. And I've seen so many people reject hospice just based on the stigma. It means I'm giving up on my loved one. How can I do such a thing? You know, yes. how, how, you know, what can help you know, to, to eliminate that kind of stigma? Because this care could actually help. I think a lot of it is going to take longer-term societal change. I mean, we didn't get to this place where where we are so uncomfortable talking about death. I mean, it was decades and decades and centuries ago, it, it was much more a part of our everyday lives. And I think that it's going to take more time for us to be comfortable having these conversations. I think there are some excellent books over the last several years that have come out, Being Mortal, you know, other things like that, when, you know, breath becomes air. Having these conversations and making them normal, I think is an important step, such as the work that you're doing with your podcast, having more people be able to, to view it as a part of life and not some sort of secret thing that occurs over on the side out of the view of everyone. In your research on a little bit of time, the second theme is issues relating to hospital discharge and improving mm -hmm. the transition to home hospice. What, are, what were some of those issues there? One of the things that came up from, from the staff in particular was that having been seen by palliative care team inpatient side really improved the experience. And in part, just what we were speaking of, often those were people who had been able to have more of those conversations and who had had more understanding of what was going on with them medically and also what to expect moving forward. And so, again, communication is key, people understanding their situation and then being able to plan appropriately. I think we we had a, a wife tell me that once they decided to go home on hospice, you know, there was this hope that we could get it done and go home. And it's, you know, if you've ever worked in a hospital, a lot of things have to take place <laughs> before someone can leave, you know, yeah. the, the discharge planning and and the this wife was lamenting the fact that so many people had to come in and do paperwork and she found it to be burdensome and waiting for transportation and figuring out there's some patients who need to be medicated prior to, you know, transport home. And it can be quite burdensome for somebody, especially if they are in a lot of pain, if they are medically unstable. And and so figuring out how to get someone home and, and doing so is, is not always easy. And so there certainly are cases, just as, as you said, where the hospital is the right place or inpatient hospice. But figuring out how to manage a care transition, so critical as this, is important. But but often the, the person gets lost in just the mix-up of everything that's going on. And patients and their families often remember it in, in a less-than-ideal way. Yeah. 
And the mix-up, I see that a lot because a patient can get discharged and when they, when they get home, the medication hasn't arrived. Correct. Or there's no equipment at home yet. Yep. And all those things create a lot of anxiety uh, for the family members. We had somebody say exactly that, that the medication they got home, the medication was supposed to be delivered the next day. And that first night, she said, I, I didn't know what to do. I crushed up you know, one of the pain tablets that I'd been given and put it under his tongue and she was scared. What if he needed something? What if she, you know, people, when they are doing this for the first time, it can be terrifying. You know, those of us who work in the field have have worked with so many families and patients, but every person we are working with, this is the first time they are doing it. And mm -hmm. and so the, the need for education, the need for assurance, the need to know that there's someone you can call in a crisis, that's how you help somebody make these things happen. With that, we'll take a little break. Our guest is Dr. Sarah Harrington-Cross. She's one of the leading researchers in hospice and palliative care. We'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sole Bem, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with Dr. Cross. Uh, the third theme in your research is the issues relating to the first touch of hospice. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so this was um, really quite interesting to me. I think that many of us on the hospice side, you know, we, we want to be able to get care to, to the patient as soon as possible, but it also can be a bit overwhelming. And we had some staff tell us that if someone is just, you know, just getting a diagnosis of, of terminal disease, or they've just gotten home after a, a hospital stay, sometimes they are still processing the news that they've received. And then having hospice come in, particularly when they need to be seen by multiple staff members, you know, you need to have a nurse come and do that assessment. You need a chaplain to do the spiritual assessment and a social worker to do the psychosocial assessment. And then you're going to have a hospice aide come out. That can be a lot for someone, particularly having strangers come into their home. And, and so the, the feedback was that this can be overwhelming. The flip side of that is that people often want support and feel like then if if somebody dies shortly after getting home and they didn't have hospice as long as they would have liked, they, they felt like they didn't get that support. And we know from other researchers' data that, that people often use hospice for too short of a time to fully benefit from all of that support. I don't have a perfect answer for how to, how to figure that out, but I, I think it's important for staff who are who are this first touch of hospice to try to assess where where a patient and their family are to try to figure out does this person need more time before I am overwhelming them with more paperwork and with more questions when they are still accepting sort of this this new phase of life. Uh, one of the other sort of sub themes of this this particular hospice that that we interviewed uh, staff from 
had dedicated admission staff, and it was either nurses or social workers. And not all hospices have dedicated admission staff. There, you know, sometimes staff go out and do an admission, and then they follow the patient for the duration of of their care. But one of the things that that stood out from our interviews is how much social workers were valued at this admission. Both the the family members and the staff said this. You know, staff said that the nurses primarily said that that I, I feel like I'm doing a disservice if I don't have have a, a social worker, that there are certain skills that social workers bring that that nurses didn't have, didn't feel that they had received adequate training in to be able to to do. We had a family member say that she felt that the admission was so clinical. Hmm. They focus so much on the medical, but she said dealing with the emotional part first would have made dealing with the medical part so much easier and made it feel less sterile. A few more things along along this line of of the sort of the beginning of hospice. How do you set someone up well? A lot of that is accurate information on on what hospice uh, services entail. You know, we we had someone say well, we signed up for hospice and we're like, yes, here comes some help. And then we we didn't expect that the family was supposed to be responsible for the majority of care. Hmm. And and that goes back to the, the challenges of dying at home, that it, it is not always this sort of picture perfect situation that we might like to think. It's It sometimes is upsetting for families to know that a staff member may be there for an hour and then they're gone. And the 23 remaining hours of the day they are responsible for providing care. So setting those expectations from the get-go matter quite a bit. It looks like there's a lot of things that need to be done. Many people struggle to to have access to hospice. Many people struggle to understand uh, the care. Uh, I know uh, when the pioneers started hospice, I think it, it was a powerful vision. Now hospice has gone through a crisis. There's a lot of money to some it's a business. Mm-hmm. How can we recapture the heart of hospice? Wow. I, I think you could do multiple episodes. <laughs> to, to, I mean, I, I don't even, even know how to answer that in, in one thought. I, I think there's so many things. I think personally, if you design care with the goal of saving money, I don't know how you can do that. and and meet your goal of also providing excellent care all of the time. Hmm. There are some phenomenal people working in hospice who are dedicated, but they are also limited by by what they are able to do. And there is a concerning trend in hospices trying to increase their profit margin, cutting back on services to try to make money. I have seen this firsthand. And I have heard this from clinicians who I am still in contact with who are still in hospice. And at the end of the day, the people who are dying and their families suffer when an owner who buys a hospice wants to cut costs. So what does that look like? That means you have staff taking on higher caseloads. When you're in hospice, you are going to people's homes, driving all over God's green earth. How do you do that job well when your numbers keep growing so that a company can make more money. Hmm. 
cutting back on on services is not good patient care. Just end of story. And that's happening a lot. It you is. Know, you see nurses or chaplains and social workers with big case loads. Mm-hmm. That makes it really impossible for them to practice mm-hmm. care well. Uh, that's why it's causing a lot of moral injury to hospice staff. Exactly. There, there has been, even when I was working in the field, there was, we, we talk a lot about personalizing care on a, on a case-by-case basis. But at the same time, there was incentives to increase productivity, so to speak, you know, mm-hmm. and, and see more patients in the same amount of time. And I, and I think that's even harder when you have a limited number of trained professionals to recruit into this work. It's not sustainable. And Mm -hmm. and I I think we're seeing it. We're seeing it in in increasing rates of people leaving hospice. You know, we're seeing it in in the healthcare workforce leaving. I think they're, they're going to need to be policy changes that sort of protect essential services for people. You're a true champion for good care. Uh, time has just flown by so quick. What are your final thoughts? I, I love this field. You know, I, I love it. And I think I think those of us who love it are critical because we love it and because we want to see that that people get the care that they, they need and that they deserve. You know, I, I've been so motivated by the researchers who have you know, been been doing this for decades longer than I have, and I am just beginning to sort of dip my foot in into the research waters. I I, I want to say just thank you to the people who are doing this work and who, especially, who have continued to do it throughout the pandemic. I know that has been very very difficult, and I stepped back from clinical work prior to the pandemic. I I would just urge people to to stay involved with advocacy, pushing for change. There have been a number of efforts to put legislation into effect that support the palliative care and end-of-life care workforce, improving access to telehealth. Stay involved. You know, if if you love this field and, and you are passionate about people getting the care that they need, write your representatives, write your senators. They need to hear from people who care about this. As a social worker, you know, being socially engaged is an important part of, of my identity. And I, I think that the other disciplines involved in this field, the same goes for them, that these voices need to be heard. You are on the front line sort of seeing the effects of, of policy on patients and on families. And and so speak up and, and share what you were seeing in a, in a way that can help improve this care and make it sustainable. Our population is aging. More of us are, are dying every year. More of us are going to be needing care. And the, the only way to, to make it work and, and to make good quality care last is if there is a sustained dedication for that care. Wow. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Dr. Sarah Harrington Cross. Thank you for listening. This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to this show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.